when I was working on, on Jackie Robinson, I said, look, what happens if you're a Brooklyn Dodger fan and you're a racist? You got about three, op three things, options, it seems to me. One, you can change teams, but Jackie means they're coming on every team. You can change sports, but Jackie means they're coming on every other sport, or you can change. And that, that's the thing we're not doing today. Where everybody's in their own corner, to use a boxing metaphor, and we're, we're at daggers drawn. And what we need are the messages of people like Jackie Robinson in one age and Muhammad Ali in another, who have actually put a lot of things on their line for their own beliefs, even when that ran counter to what everybody else was saying. Jungle Cruise is exactly what you expect it to be, a bombastic but bland action-adventure jam packed with outlandish set pieces clocking in at 30 minutes too long. Let's win Le Ma of news.com.au. Great to have you with us here on Cinephile. That's right, if you haven't noticed right now, the recipe we've been having here on Cinephile, a little bit of old, a little bit of new, and a little bit of a wild card. So Jungle Cruise and Paw Patrol, yes, very much a uh, kid theme here, are our new movies we're reviewing here in the pod. Going old school, an absolute art house classic, Blue, White, and Red from Krzysztof Kieślowski, the great Polish master, hugely successful films on the foreign circuit in the 90s, and then Clute, 50th anniversary of the film that won Jane Fonda an Oscar. So yes, those are your old movies, and you're wondering, what's your wild card? Chris, we got a big guest today. Who do we got? <laughs> Ken Burns. Is this like the best documentarian ever? Like, is that it? I think so. I mean, we, know, we should ask Ken that. And, and to be honest with you, normally we do the reviews, then we go to the guests, but Chris and I were talking. Kevin Costner, huge guest last week. By the way, thanks to everybody who listened. Glenn Frankel was fantastic. Subscribe, rate, review, Apple Podcasts. Please give some love to the podcast. But listen, Cody and I were talking about it. Costner was so good. Everyone loved him. He was articulate, interesting. We're going with a big guest first. You're right. Because of Ken Burns, arguably the best documentarian alive, I'm going to shut up right now. We're going right to Ken Burns. Then we'll do our reviews. As Chris Cody just said, he is America's foremost documentarian, one of the greats ever. His name is Ken Burns. I've loved his work, whether it's baseball or jazz or unforgivable blackness or Hemingway or his forthcoming Ali. Ken Burns always brings it. Muhammad Ali, a four-part documentary series, premieres September 19th on PBS. Ken, it's an absolute pleasure. It's my pleasure, and then thank you so much for having me. So let's dive into Ali. I was skeptical for this reason. I said, I've read David Remnick's King of the World. I've read Fight of the Century. I've watched Ali. I've watched When We Were Kings. I've watched One Night in Miami. What exactly is Ken Burns going to give me that I don't already know about this American hero? And yet, I watched it, and I found there to be a lot of profound insights, particularly about his personal life, uh, with his wives, with his daughters. you got excellent information. But let me start there. If someone said to you, Ken, Ali, I know the story. Of course he's an American hero, but what new terrain are you treading here? Why do Ali now? You know, we've always tried to be uh, very deep and comprehensive in the work that we've done. And in this case, the, my co-directors are my oldest daughter, Sarah Burns, and her husband, David McMahon. And Sarah and Dave wrote the script. Um, there are lots of great films on Muhammad Ali. And as you pointed out, it might be a particular fight when we were kings. It might be one night, uh, most recently, about after he won the heavyweight championship with um, uh, Sonny Liston. However, nobody had done anything really comprehensive. That is to say, begin with his birth and childhood in segregated Jim Crow, Louisville, Kentucky, all the way to his death by Parkinson's 
five years ago. It's 2016. It's not that long ago. And to invest yourself in all of the important fights and embed somebody who knows how to talk about fights, former heavyweight champion Michael Bent, and to also talk about his religious faith. This guy intersected with all the major themes of the last half of the 20th century. So it's sports, it's race, it's black representation, it's faith, it's Islam, it's religion, it's politics, it's war, it's sexual politics, it's family dynamics. So we wanted to know what everything was. We weren't going to forget the fights. They're central to the story of this film, but we didn't want to forget how important faith was in this and the evolution of his relationship uh, to what he thought was Islam. In the beginning, he joins the Nation of Islam, which is a sect. It's not really any relationship to Islam itself, but he grows into, as Malcolm X tried to do, into a relationship with it. The politics, the courage of it, the, the, the idea of freedom, of trying to represent not only for himself, but for other people. My film on Jack Johnson was similarly themed, but Jack Johnson was just for himself. Muhammad Ali was for everybody else. That's why when he died, for all the divisiveness of the story that we know, he dies the most popular person on his planet. When he died, I was working at ESPN at the time, and one of the producers reached out and said, listen, I know you're Muslim. We need a favor. I said, sure. He goes, can you come on and discuss what a Muslim funeral is like? We're, we're broadcasting all these funeral. We don't know about prayers being said and uh, just with all the rituals. And I said, sure, I'm ready to do that. And I just got, I had an interview with a guy named Steve Ferris. He's a writer at Newsweek. And he said, you know, we're doing a profile about the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and how life has changed for American Muslims. And I love the fact that you included in your documentary, as you said, Ali's transformation and how he was a man of faith. And the Nation of Islam, as you point out, that was a radical sect which has very little to do with Orthodox Islam, whether you're Shia right. or Sunni, etc. And late in his life, I love the story his daughter said about Muhammad felt like there was a tally angel in heaven. And they yes. would tally up all the good things you did and all the bad things you did. And he was genuinely regretful about his relationships with women and the adultery yeah. and realized that I did not live my life as a Muslim as I should have, but hopefully I've done enough good. I don't want to speak for God. I think he did an enormous amount of good, yeah. but I do think it's important. And especially you mentioned 9-11, Ali would go around yeah. and hand pamphlets, signs saying, here's what Islam is. Here's what my religion's about. That's very critical, Ken, to have someone like that. Because when people are saying, wait, is this entire faith like this? Well, hang on. I love Ali. He's the greatest athlete of all time. And so he can't be like this because this whole group is not like this. I, I really thought that was important you included that. I uh, thank you. It was really important for us to do that. Not so much to score the political points about 9-11. That's just as part of the story. But as the scholar of Islam that we brought in, Sherman Jackson, yeah. I mean, to, as he said, to have... A, a, somebody as big as Ali to be a Muslim American, equal, as he says, equal emphasis on Muslim and American, yeah. or American and Muslim. And, and that's a problem. We're a country founded on the idea anybody can worship God the, the way they want to. And yet, it doesn't really actually in day-to-day -day practice work out for that. The, the stepladder of his divisiveness is, first, he's a black athlete and an athlete who's bragging, aren't I beautiful, I'm going to win, and this is the round I'm going to win, and all that stuff. And a lot of people who want Liston to shut him up, like <laughs> to, to just knock his teeth out so he can't talk, right? right? And so that's the first step. And the second step is after he beats Liston, improbably, 
wonderfully in one of the great dramatic fights of all times, he then acknowledges that he's drawn to the nation of Islam, which has already been labeled by mainstream media as a, as a, as a, as a terrorist group, as a hate group. And, and it, it is corrupt in, in many ways, and it isn't Islam in many ways, but it has provided him with an underpinning of independence and faith that helps him translate that boyhood in segregated Louisville, translate his father's anger at being denied rightful uh, improvement helps him figure out what to do with all these emotions about Emmett Till, his own age, who is tortured and brutally murdered and whose mother has the courage to leave the casket open and Jet Magazine runs all the pictures and everybody, including kids, look at this mangled, tortured body and go, there but for the grace of, go I. And so suddenly he's drawn to the empowerment that the nation of Isfahan seems to be showing and it, and, it, and it gets him. So that's the second step. And then, of course, when he refuses on religious grounds to induction into the United States Army to fight in Vietnam after first being classified as unacceptable to the Army and then being reclassified 1A, he thinks some fixes in. But he also says, no, I'd rather go in front of machine guns than go against my faith. And America takes that as a political challenge instead of a religious one. And eventually, you know, he's sentenced to five years in jail, goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. They're going to uphold it. He's going to go to jail. He's lost three and a half years of his, the prime of his career. But on a technicality, they realize he'd been denied due process with regard to why he was originally uh, denied conscientious objector status. And, and when he is when he's exonerated, eight to nothing, Thurgood Marshall is recusing himself. He was in the Justice Department when the ruling came down about him going to jail. Um, he could have bragged. He could have been the voluble Muhammad Ali we assume he always was. And instead, he, he looks, somebody says, what do you think about the system? And he goes, well, I don't know who's going to be assassinated tonight. I don't know who's going to be denied injustice or equality tonight. And he's thinking about about 350 years of the treatment of African Americans uh, on this continent since 1619 when they were brought by force to be slave labor. And he's thinking about Emmett Till and he's ranging ahead to people he doesn't know and you don't know and I don't know who we're going to know like Rodney King and Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the list is endless and he contains us. He's in his 20s. He has the ability to understand where he's going. No wonder he's beloved in Saharan and Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and Southeast Asia all around the world. People are drawn to that kind of courage. It is undeniable. So he may be the goat within his profession. He may be the goat period and I'm willing to have that argument at a bar, you know, but he's more than that. He is a great American who leads the way. He redefines black manhood, you know, Jackie Robinson, subject of a film we did, you know, was perhaps the definition of black manhood for the previous generation. He's now a new definition and it's in your face and it's proud and it's empowering. When he says, I'm beautiful, he's telling everyone else, you have the permission to say that you're beautiful. You have been told for hundreds of years that you are a priori unattractive, ugly, black. And he is saying, uh-uh, look at me. I'm as pretty as a girl. <laughs> Expertly uh, explained there by Ken Burns. I, I love you, right? The section about him challenging the Supreme Court. Listen, we can laud Colin Kaepernick. We can praise LeBron James. All these guys are very socially active. What Ali did is in a different stratosphere. You know, yeah. and I, I would like to put an asterisk with, with, with four people. Sure. Um, Carlos and Smith who yes. lost everything, right. 
Kurt, Kurt Flood, a black man challenging the plantation system of the reserve clause, yep. not going to work. It's going to take two white guys, Messer Schmidt and McNally, to, to with Marvin Miller, who's the genius, make that bad system go away. Right. And Colin Kaepernick, who hasn't yeah. worked, right? Yeah. But this guy was risking everything, imprisonment, freedom, his profession, everything. So I'm really happy. I'm not in the shut up and dribble school. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I think everybody has a right to talk out. I've, I've read the Constitution recently. I carry it around with me. And uh, I know that no matter what you do, whether you're a street sweeper or a president or a professional athlete, you can say what you believe. And it's really good to see athletes stepping up and, and as people are saying, being heroic. But this is not heroism in the kind of Muhammad Ali. LeBron James, and I admire immensely, and he's maybe the best basketball player of his day, but he's not losing that Nike contract. He's not losing his multi, multi, multi million dollar a year deals. Muhammad Ali gave it up in a second, and he was so impoverished that his second wife, Belinda, who changed her name to Kalila, dipped into a college fund to help pay the bills. I mean, come on. You know, and he's and he was perfectly content to do that. He starts going out to raise money and uh, on the on the lecture circuit and become you know wins a whole audience among college students. This is just an unbelievable hero's journey, and and there is no big army going on in in uh, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter that compares to the sort of the epic battles that Muhammad Ali fought. Whether it's the first Liston or or particularly to my mind the the third Frazier and the and the and the Rumble in the Jungle. Yeah, I mean he once received a decapitated black dog in Georgia. I mean just vicious yeah. stuff that was being sent his way, and he used his tongue to lacerate racism and oppression. He became more assertive, more. It's amazing how literally the country changed with him. You know, Chicago Mayor Richard Daley was yeah. looking to ban him, and literally he's giving him medals later on. He, I said, this he is did, amazing. He did ban him, and right. he did give him medals. And that tells us, as David Remnick suggests at the torch lighting, yeah. that, you know, Ali hasn't changed, but right. maybe we're capable of changing. And that's what I always said when I was working on, on Jackie Robinson. I said, look, what happens if you're a Brooklyn Dodger fan and you're a racist? You got about three op three things options. It seems to me, one you can change teams, but Jackie means they're coming on every team. Oh, yeah. You can change sports, but Jackie means they're coming on every other sport, or you can change. Yeah, and that that's the thing we're not doing today, where everybody's in their own corner to use a boxing metaphor, mm -hmm. and we're we're at we're at daggers drawn. And what we need are the messages of people like Jackie Robinson in one age and Muhammad Ali in another who have actually put a lot of things on their line for their own beliefs, even when that ran counter to what everybody else was saying and um, really become hugely inspirational for people, even when they're unaware of how he's working on them. You know, when, when Ali would have a press conference, the whole sports world would stop. When he'd go to another country, the whole country would stop. It's amazing. And his generosity is amazing. There's a great story. I want everyone to watch this four-part documentary series, September 19th of PBS, about Angelo Dundee saying, yeah, don't give yeah. any money to that guy oh, with the Roy this, Campanella hat. I, that that this, story was amazing. The, this, is, this is great. So it's a Fifth Street gym. There's a guy there with, 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 in a wheelchair who's paralyzed and and dundee goes over to to the, then cassius clay and he says look that guy's going to tell you he's he's roy campanella the great brooklyn dodger catcher who was in a horrible car accident and paralyzed from the waist down he said don't give him any money 
And so a little bit later, Angelo Dundee looks over and there's Cassius Clay, a roll of bills handing out to this guy. And he comes over and he goes, why did you do that? I told you, he's a hustler. He's in here all the time. He goes, Ange, we have legs. And that's, that's Muhammad Ali. The generosity is unbelievable. He said that kindness to others or service to others is the rent you pay for your room in heaven or conversely the rent you pay for your room here on earth and he understood service to others as, as a sacrosanct part of it and he'd take off a brand new coat and give it to it a ring a watch thirty thousand dollars his wife said he'd leave the house with thirty thousand dollars he'd come back empty and he'd tell somebody he was having a problem he'd pay off a mortgage he'd send somebody to school he'd pay the medical bills and you know, away Rolexes for God's sakes, wads of bills, like no problem. It's just it, he understood. You know, the best things in life are not things, and they're relationships and love. And that's that's why you know, I think this this is a great apostle of love. It, look, it's a four letter word that the FCC allows us to use on PBS, but nobody can really talk about it. And when you come in contact with Muhammad Ali, you suddenly go, ah, you know, there's that great picture in the in the Fifth Street gym with the Beatles. You know, and he's knocking them over. They're going down like down. And you're thinking, here are five men, Muhammad Ali and the Beatles, and they all got it. Best, best understood by uh, Paul McCartney's line, the love you take is equal to the love you make. And they'll spend their lives, flawed human beings all, trying to live that out. And it's, um, it's actually a very beautiful thing, as yeah. his daughter Rashida said. Well said. I can't wait for people to watch Ali. I also loved Hemingway, especially the praise that you lavished upon A Farewell to Arms, the short stories like Snows of Kilimanjaro, Sun Also Rises. Do you think Ken Hemingway could exist today, considering the misogynistic behavior, the cruelty to animals? At the same time, I think he might be more embraced today because of the gender fluidity, the attraction to androgyny, that would be more embraced today. What do you think? Well, it's a really good question, and I think that the, he's such a good writer that it's going to will out. And he would have, there would have been all of that stuff. We would be less infatuated with the macho posturing, which he was, well, like he really was a deep sea fisherman. He really was a big game under. He right. really was an outdoorsman. He really did brawl. He did drink. You know, he did all those things, but he allowed that to be a kind of mask that he could hide behind because he's also deeply sensitive and probably deeply insecure and has this within him and it's not contradictory a kind of gender fluidity and it's it manifests in his relationships and in some of his stories where he can get under the skin of a woman in a way that you if you want to dismiss if you want to cancel you know him you're going to have a hard time doing it because the quality of writing is just mind-boggling good like Muhammad Ali in the ring against you know Cleveland Big Cat Williams or or let's just say George Foreman it's just undeniably great. You don't get any better than that. And at the same time, there's enough undertow that you love him and you appreciate him. And, and so with, I've, I've done biographies of lots of people, some of them like Frank Lloyd Wright, I'm not, I don't feel very drawn to. He's not sympathetic. He's a kind of a arrogant SOB. And, and you know, you could say the same thing about Hemingway, but you, you love him for the vulnerability. You yes. love him for the great writing. And once you learn some of these other things, just like with Muhammad Ali, you learn the undertow. You learn the contradictions. You learn to get beyond this, the, just the superficial conventional knowledge, then all of a sudden you're rewarded, filmmaker as well as audience, I believe, by the complexity of that. And you realize within that is room to grow for me, to learn to be a better human being. Um, and, and Hemingway teaches that. 
in in a one way his his life doesn't end very well at 60 years old you know 61 years old alone with a shotgun in Ketchum Idaho don't try this at home yeah. Muhammad Ali though imprisoned for the last decades um, uh, by Parkinson's disease nonetheless uh, is liberated and his room in heaven is pretty big Rapid fire, and we'll get you out of here. Coltrane or Miles Davis? I love the jazz documentary. For you, which one do you oh, like? Oh, man. That's, that's Sophie's choice. Oh, my God. I, I love don't know Supreme. How, I, I can't. I, you know, Miles Davis didn't have the chops that, that Dizzy and Charlie Parker had, and yet he knew to play the pretty notes. And then Coltrane is just on another planet. So, you know, it's apples and oranges. You know, they're, they're, they're too huge. Great. What a great question. That's going to hurt me for a long time. <laughs> one national park. Which one do you go to? Uh, Yosemite. Uh, you just got to go to the most beautiful place I've ever been to on Earth. Can we get an 11th inning of baseball? Astro yes, science, well, you know what? I'm in, metrics? Yeah. I'm in such big trouble right now because when, when we finished the 10th inning, they, they said, and it was after, you know, the Bartman ball, which we did and all that, they, I said, well, you know, I can't do the 11th until the Cubs world, the, win the World Series, and I need a couple of other things. Well, I've gotten a couple of other things, you know, plus the Cubs won the World Series, and I just don't have any bandwidth. And if I were given a thousand years to live, which I'm not, I, I'd, I'd never run out of topics in American history. And, you know, after Ali comes Benjamin Franklin, we just locked that picture. We're halfway through editing the U.S. and the Holocaust. The next big film on uh, war is the American Revolution. We're doing a history of the buffalo, which is a parable of de-extinction. We're in the middle of a big series on the history of emancipation to the great migration, sort of African-American life from the Emancipation Proclamation on. We're doing LBJ and the Great Society. And our first non-American topic, Leonardo, these are all underway, let alone <laughs> two other projects I haven't possibly I'm so greedy I haven't possibly given you know said to the world yes we're doing it though right. we're doing it so you know that's that's nine in my book and they're all happening and I I and I want to do an 11th inning and I want to do a 12th inning <laughs> you know so <laughs> last one July 29th the famed birthday for Getty Lee Stugatz from the Dan Levitard show you and me every time someone says to you who's your most famous birthday I say Ken Burns so a oh happy belated birthday July 29th hey July you're July 29th that's so great I'm, I'm now the scale is balancing towards the good because as you know it's also Benito <laughs> Mussolini's <laughs> birthday and there of course wasn't a balcony that he didn't want to give some speech to the rabble rousers and you know the Italian equivalent of lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. And so, you know, knowing that you're now on that list, I'm feeling like, whoa, maybe the tallying angel is going to be a little bit more forgiving of me. <laughs> Thank you so much for providing me with that cover. That's a big punch against fascism. Muhammad Ali, a four-part documentary series premiere September 19th on PBS. I could talk to Ken Burns for hours. His films are incredible. And as you can tell, he's so soulful. He's so articulate. And I love, by the way, Keith David. Another time I want to talk about how did you get Keith David? His voice is so I, great. He, we, I love him, man. He, you know, we used him as a first-person voice, and I said, wait a second, I need him as a narrator. So he did jazz, and he's yeah. done so many of the things. And, you know, I'm the narrator of my films uh, up until, you know, the 11th hour. And, and it's only when we're almost close to locking the picture do we go and record it, because if you make a change of a the to an uh, then you got to go read the whole thing again, right? Yeah. So why not do me? I'm free. And so we live with me. And so I always love it when Peter Coyote or, or Keith David ride to the rescue and we finally whew, 
get rid of my voice. And, and, and you know, Keith is just great. He's got the basso profundo. And when he tells jokes and he laughs in the studio, we're now doing it remotely, but, you know, soon we'll get back in together. It's just, it's just so great to hear him well, it's uh, like, crack up. And I love supporting characters in the movies. Like, I was so happy to see Gerald Early again. I'm like, oh, I loved him in jazz. Yeah. Gerald Early's back. Okay, he's and, in baseball. In jazz, in baseball, baseball. in the 10th inning, in yeah. Jack Johnson. I mean, yeah. we don't leave home without Gerald Early, you know? <laughs> and now I don't want to leave home without Todd Boyd, oh, who's fantastic. You know, Jonathan, yeah. Jonathan Ig was in Jackie and in Prohibition. So, yeah. you know, we're we're pretty loyal uh, folks, you know, in, in, in terms of, uh, of that regard. Because if somebody's smart, it's smart on your part, even if you're not smart, to just use them again. Oh, right? the Birds yeah. Traveling Show. At some yeah. point, we're going to see all these characters <laughs> together. Uh, Muhammad Ali, once again, September 19th on PBS. Thanks so much, Ken. Really appreciate you. It's my pleasure. Great to be with you. Seriously, how good was that? The Ken Burns, is he a fan of me or what? With the fact we have the show the same birthday, you can tell I had him right there. I mean, we're on a hot streak right now. I'm feeling myself a little bit. <laughs> Kevin Costner, even though I had nothing to do with booking that. Ken Burns, I mean, look at us right now. Oh, dude. Is, I'm feeling good, feeling good. We're flying right now. This is the place to get all the stars. And speaking of stars, how about Jungle Cruise? Okay, you got The Rock, you got Emily Blunt. Mark Feeney of the Boston Globe, by the way, Emily Blunt is so much better than anything else in the movie. She makes it not only tolerable, but sometimes surprisingly enjoyable. Ouch, talk about a backhand compliment. <laughs> she's phenomenal. I can't believe she's on this train wreck of a show. God. Anyways, here's what the movie's about. It's kind of like a modern-day African queen, which, if you recall, that movie actually won Humphrey Bogart an Oscar. The same will not be said for Dwayne Johnson. Yes, The Rock. <laughs> he is the master of puns. He's this ace conductor of a jungle cruise, and it takes his unsuspecting flock of tourists to see exotic locales and animals under so pressure. So it's like from The Ride. Exactly. So it's like the ride. It's just like the ride. You're like, <laughs> if you had to predict what's this movie going to be about, I'm like, it's kind of like a ride. Let me get there's like some scary chills and spills and some snakes at some point. I'm like, yeah. And the funny thing is, is the ride just okay? Yeah. And quite frankly, that is what we can say about the movie as well. <laughs> and my biggest quibble right now, Chris, the great Paul Giamatti, who plays Dwayne Johnson's boss, completely wasted. I mean, he gets about five scenes in five movies. And listen, I know going into the film, Paul Giamatti's one of my top five favorite actors. I know he's not the star of the movie. I know they're just <laughs> seducing me by saying Paul Giamatti. Like, he's barely... But five scenes? Like, dude, if you get Paul Giamatti, you got to give him 20 minutes. you got to give him 25 minutes, minimum. All right? There's certain <sighs> actors, if you're going to put him on the, on the billing... I gotta get my money's worth, man. I love Giamatti. Do you like Giamatti it's, as much as I do? I, oh, I love Paul Giamatti. I'm surprised he takes this role. Like, I don't, I don't want to accuse him of a money grab. Like, is he just, you know, like he's just like this is a big time movie. Let me get my name out there. Like, it's an interesting choice by Giamatti. I think it's totally fair to call it a money grab. As we speak right now, my kids and wife are watching San Andreas, which is another movie that some shock Paul Giamatti was in. Again, Dwayne more, Johnson. The, it's something yeah. about The Rock. Giamatti's like, oh, The Rock. He's like, I'm in. I'll be in San Andreas. I'm like, what? Why is Giamatti in this movie? The more I think about it, why am I criticizing this? There's nothing wrong with a money grab. Yeah. Get your money, Paul Giamatti. I guess that's what it must be. I, let me tell you, as a quick aside, we'll get back to the review. But early on in Cinephile, we're waiting for our first big guest. And uh, our guest bookers were so great at ESPN. And she says to me, one of our guest bookers, hey, would you like to talk to Paul Giamatti? I'm like, oh, my God. I go, he's one of my favorite actors. And Stanzik is like, oh, Adnan loves Paul Giamatti. Like, yeah. I mean, uh, Sideways and American Splendor oh. and Cinderella Man. Like, and she goes, yeah. She goes, and obviously his dad was the commissioner. I'm like, yeah, well, I don't think he likes talking about the baseball. Like, I don't think, he, you know, his dad died of a heart attack. He banned Pete Rose. I'm like, I won't even touch that stuff. We're going to talk movies. So we're getting Giamatti. She goes, he's promoting billions. I'm like, yep, yeah, I watch the show. I'm aware of it. Yeah. 
and we're sitting there in the studio, and I don't know why, we just had an uneasy feeling. And this has rarely happened, I like to point out. Like in 190-ish episodes, almost every single time, we're batting 1,000. But as soon as we get the email, hey, Paul's running about 10 minutes late. Uh, Paul's running another five minutes late. It stands like loose music. We're, we're not getting them. And then sure enough, <laughs> Paul's going to have to cancel. He won't be able to make it today. I'm like, oh, my God. And it's, and it's like the great white whale because it was like, can we reschedule? But you could almost see in the email the tone was like, he, not only is he unavailable, he's yeah. never talking to you. And I just this wish is not one, happening. Right. Just when they want to meet Paul, you mind like, what was it? Like, what, what led you to say yes? And then you're like, you know what? F that. Like, I'm not, no. These guys are going to talk about baseball. And He's I don't probably playing like Miss Pac-Man or something and just had a really good game going. Exactly. And just <laughs> Anyways, one day we're going to get Paul Giamatti here in Cinephile, but he's not in this mm-hmm. movie nearly enough. Emily Blunt is in the movie. She's lovely. You obviously know her as John Krasinski's better half. You saw her in A Quiet Place Part 2. So her and The Rock, they got their flirtatious banter going back and forth. We know which way this one is headed. But ultimately, the film is, is very predictable and meandering. I completely reviewed that blurb that Chris sent my way. It's too long. I was going to say by at least 15 minutes. 30 minutes is pretty long as well. <laughs> It's just so rude to say no, about a movie. That, that's pretty harsh. Like, dude, think about it. Most movies are about two hours. So when you say 30 minutes, that's 25% too long. Like, wow. Like, that, that is like 10 minutes. Okay, a little chop here, 10%. No, no. By 30 minutes, I was bored to tears. I wasn't quite that bored. What I do find interesting is this. Very suspect box office. If I said to you The Rock is in a summer movie, oh, this is going to make hundreds of millions of dollars. And this is not just pandemic related because the film's available on Disney Plus with the elite membership. You pay 30 bucks. I think it's called Premier Access. And even there has not done well. So I, I mm-hmm. give the, the consumers very smart tactics. They go, hmm, family film, The Rock, as you said about Giamatti, maybe just a cash grab here for The Rock. People are smarter than you think. They, they did mm-hmm. not come to this movie in droves. I'm giving it two Maple Leafs. I was hoping it would be better. It wasn't great. It did make me appreciate, though, after my brief foray into WWE, just how good these WWE guys can be as actors. Like, I, I, mm-hmm. I have to go back and think about The Rock, like how good an actual wrestler he was. But I almost find that the wrestling is the least important part. The acting is what matters. Drew McIntyre, Jinder Mahal, Big E, Mandy Rose, like all these guys would be stars if they were actors. So that's what I always find is interesting. You're like, hey, The Rock, did you did you see the star power in him? Because he is a massive star. But anyways. It's it's interesting that he has, like, you thought The Rock reached a point where it's just like anything he touches, box office gold. Like yes. people, like, to your point, the people are kind of coming around like, this is... I just don't understand this Jungle Cruise movie, man. Like, it's not a great ride. So, like, we're taking, like, a middle-of-the-road ride and we're making a movie about it. Like, it's just... Uh, yeah. We're reaching here, Disney. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, the better news, as far as the family films are concerned, is Paw Patrol the movie. And trust me, not everyone is a dad out there like me and Chris. I'm going to make this review relatively short. I like this review from Charles Solomon of Film Week. It's not so terrible that you take your kids to punish them, but it's just so uninspired. <laughs> Like, man, I, I can't. They just go with scalpels here. Like, ugh. If you need a nap, here's the great news, dads and moms and anyone else listening. 85 minutes. I mean, listen. Oh, love it. And, of course, we crushed the matinee. That's $8.50 tickets for the kids, $10.50 for dad, $38 for Tissy Paw Patrol. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm Nick Jr., I could watch a marathon for free all day, but I do pay for cable, so whatever. We're getting out of the house. And, and how about this on the popcorn and slushy? This was unbelievable. So I've, I don't think I've told you this before. There's a card that I have every time you put in, it's like an AMC membership rewards card, mm-hmm. let's call it. So as I'm getting the large popcorn, the usual three slushies, milk duds for dad, the guy was like, hey, <laughs> you have a gift certificate, $10 off. I'm like, oh my God, is this my lucky day or what? So it should have been $36 of snacks. We're down to 25 bucks. So uh, I mean, $60 for Paw Patrol, it's a steal. Uh, if you don't know what Paw Patrol is all about, uh, it's a bunch of rescue dogs, okay? You got Chase, the police dog, you got Zumo, you got Zumo, <laughs> excuse me, you got Rubble. I love Marshall, he's a big klutz. 
The one that really love is Mayor Humdinger, who's the villain. Who, as <laughs> my friend Michael Lombardi said to me, is this guy based the Monopoly guy? Like it seems very obvious this guy was just ripped off from Monopoly. Which I, I love. Think, you, I love you and Michael Lombardi breaking down Paw Patrol. Yeah, in the midst of the GM shuffle, we're breaking down Tim Tebow. <laughs> the guy sucks. Why? Why did Urban Meyer waste the time? Hey, how about Paw Patrol? I'm like, oh, where do you think the inspiration is for Mayor Humdinger? Gotta be Monopoly. Which, by the way, when he said it, I'm like, how many people are gonna say, what's the Monopoly guy? Let's hope there's yeah. not that many people that don't get that. But if not, you go ahead and Google it. Um, Jimmy Kimmel's in the movie. You got a good story. Kim Kardashian West is in the movie. And the big news here is this. Paw Patrol, no Basset Hounds. Like, that was my biggest issue with the film. I reward it because basically it was an expanded TV show. Again, my kids watch this show every single morning, okay? I've got the Paw Patrol theme (laughs) in my head. It's on Nick Jr. But for 85 minutes, I think it was rewarding in the theater. I'll give it three Maple Leafs, despite the absence of Basset Hounds. How about that? Paw Patrol, the movie. And you know what, Chris? That shows you how rewarding I am of a film with a short attention span. 85 minutes? Bravo. But it was but it was uninspired, I thought. Yeah, I mean that, that <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that what are you like expecting from a Paw Patrol movie? Like you're expecting this real deep, meaningful movie. Like it's a, it's a, right. it's a Paw Patrol movie. Right. I'm expecting a bunch of rescue dogs to capture the bad guy. Mayor Humdinger is up to no good. I'm like, yeah. I think we're kind of fairly like if you're looking for originality in a Paw Patrol movie, it's not going to be inspired. Uh, <laughs> Carla Hay of Culture Mix said Paw Patrol the movie is a lightweight, family-friendly animated film with multi-generational appeal, it's not gonna win any major awards, really? But the movie has positive messages about teamwork, self-acceptance, and caring for mental health issues. So you know what? There is a little more going on in a Paw Patrol movie than you might expect. Uh, Those are the two recent films. As far as the old films, and listen, I'm very aware of the fact if I said to you, Polish film from 1995, you're like, click. So I'm going to make this as brief as possible, and I'm going to allow my friend Chris Cody to jump in as much as possible. I'm brandishing here, as he can see, blue, white, and red. This is the Three Colors mm. trilogy from the great Polish filmmaker Krzysztof Kieślowski. Thanks to my buddy John Leboy, who's a cameraman at MLB Network. I don't know how the hell we got to talking about Polish cinema, but he's a huge movie head, big fan of the podcast. And I'm like, do you have blue, white, and red? He's like, yeah. And as Chris has noted before, he's still shocked that I still get DVDs and that there are people who loan me DVDs. So uh, the fact that I work with a guy who gave me the trilogy, I'm like, I can't wait. I'm going to dive into this tonight. I'll watch a bit of Fernando Tatis and the Padres, and I'm going to watch Blue, White, and Red. I'll give you the synopsis of both, and please, Chris, at all times, interject in this. Blue, by the way, these three colors, blue, white, and red, you think to yourself, why not red, white, and blue? Oh, because it's not American. And these are actually the colors of the French flag, and they represent the different parts of France, the blue, white, and red. So Blue stars Academy Award winner Juliette Binoche. She was a best supporting actress for The English Patient. She's a young woman left devastated by the unexpected death of her husband and child. She retreats from the world around her, but is soon reluctantly drawn into an ever-widening web of lies and passion as the dark secret life of her husband begins to unravel. Chris is never going to see the movie. Most of you will never see the movie. So I'm just going to go ahead and give the spoiler right now. You start out watching this movie, and you're like, oh my God, she's in this devastating car accident, and her, she loses her husband and her son. Oh, Then it finds out her husband was having a crazy affair on her, okay? Not as upset about him dying. Oh, wait, not only that, she meets the mistress, and the mistress tells her she's pregnant with her dead oh. husband's kid and intends oh. to have the child. Oof. Uh, this is this just got more interesting. I'm into this now. I- <laughs> See, that's why you give the spoiler. I gotta see how this goes. So I will not. I will not reveal how the rest of the film unfolds, except to say I was not expecting that left hook with a nod to Joe Frazier out of nowhere. I'm like, okay. So when you talk about fidelity and marriage, blue, white, and red are taking you on a different journey. I'm still just stuck on you uh, exchanging a DVD with somebody. Like I can't remember. Like this has to be available for you on one of your streaming services. Like the, the need for the the the. Hey, can you bring this over to me? Hey, thanks. This DVD, and then you grabbing it and putting it in your backpack, bringing it home. I mean, it is. 
We're living in the 90s, and I love it. Right. Like, imagine the number of people who were there in the studio who saw the exchange of Because oh. you actually left it on my desk, so I was still holding, going, hey, thanks. So I was like, well, what is that what he's holding? What decade is this? Right. I'm thinking, the if hell I see is he this. Holding? He's talking about special features and director commentary. Like, what? They don't have that on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> I love it. What the hell it. is he talking about? That's why you're the host of Cinephile, I because you're still exchanging DVD I movies. Have definitely, I definitely have an old soul. Now, White is the one that you and I would enjoy. This is the middle section. I love this film. This stars uh, Julie Delpy, who, if you know her from the Before Sunrise movies, White is the mysterious tale of a man whose life disintegrates when his beautiful wife of six months deserts him. Forced to begin anew, he rebuilds his life, only to plan a dangerous scheme of vengeance against her. Uh, this film, by the way, won Best Director at the Berlin Film Festival. So he's going through this nasty divorce. It's a relatively unknown actor. I, I didn't know any of his other work. And Julie Delpy's like mocking him for the fact that he can't get it up. And I'm like, oh, man. And so he goes to see her like one last-ditch effort there like in her hair salon. And you know, she touches him in the private area, and he, like, he has a smile on his face. He's like, oh, he's obviously feeling it. And then she gets on top of him. And then the shot of him literally with his neck like to the sky like oh my god are you kidding me where we quickly realize he's gone limp yet again and like his <laughs> his ex-wife has just humiliated him like she's already taken him to court she's going to take him to the cleaners he's oh, like okay let's have guy. one last boom and I can redeem myself and no he's feeling it mm. and that peters out and the expression <sighs> of his face I'm like wow Thank God this hasn't hit me yet, because that would be a hell of a way to go down. <laughs> then the plot hatches this incredible tale of vengeance. I got to tell you, at one point, he is in a suitcase traveling to Warsaw. And you're like, what is this about? Because he's got to get revenge on his wife. I will only end by saying this. Every single one of these three movies ends with the character crying. And let's just say when he's crying, he's crying tears of joy. And what he does to <laughs> ah. her, yeah. And what he does to her is a hell of a move. I was like, wow. You talk about a guy who's been scorned. You know the expression, hell hath no fear like a woman scorned. This guy's revenge plot is nothing short of masterful. Uh, he goes through absolute hell to try to get revenge on this woman, and I applaud him for it. Because by the end, I'm like, all right, you know what, dude? You've earned it. You went to Warsaw, and you struggled in the filth and muck and dreck, and you're back. Uh, the last film is called Red. This was actually nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. This stars a young model whose chance meeting with an unusual stranger leads her down a path of intrigue and secrecy. I sort of got every single synopsis, by the way, used the word intrigue, I swear. Um, as her knowledge of the man deepens, she discovers an astonishing link between his past and her destiny. This is in some ways the most enigmatic of the three, because I don't really know how to describe it other than to say... Yeah, she's a model, and then she discovers this guy who's a former judge who's a miserable guy. She basically discovers his dog and says, hey, I found your dog. By the way, not a Basset Hound, German Shepherd. And he's like, he's like, yeah, it's a really smart dog. She's like, okay, go, like, do you want the dog back? And he's like, I don't care. I'll do whatever you want. She's like, okay, fine. So she kind of takes the dog with her. The dog is a beautiful dog, looks after her. But she's kind of like curious about this dude. So she goes back to see him again. He's older. He's got this cane. He's gruff. He's grumpy. He starts telling her about his life. He's a former judge who readily admits he spies on people. He's an absolute voyeur. And she's like, what? And like, you're peeping Tom? He's like, no, I listen to them. And he starts playing. He's like, listen, this is the neighbor next door. This is what they're doing. She's having an affair on this guy. He's been doing this. This guy. I'm like, oh. <laughs> which, which got me to thinking, what would it take for you, Chris Cody, to do surveillance on anyone? Because here is the key. If I said to you, do you want to spy? God forbid you and your wife ever break up. It's not going to happen. But God forbid right. you break up. You're like, oh, I want to spy on her, see what she's doing. Dude, you know how boring it would be to sit and listen Two conversations. Like, you're just wiretapping into a house. Is someone telling you when they're talking? When is it interesting? If you and I are watching a movie, we know when it's interesting. We know when to fast forward. You can't yeah. just fast forward an eight-hour phone conversation. Can you imagine a worse job than phone surveillance? 
Oh, what a terrible, like, to just to find out you've been being surveyed. It's yes. worse, it, like, as bad, as terrible it is to do that to somebody, <laughs> to, like, realize that everything I've been doing has been being surveyed. I don't like this. No. Too, too fishy. And by the way, in real life, uh, Gary Shandling was being phone tapped by uh, Anthony Pelicano, I believe was his name. Because at Shandling's funeral, Kevin Nealon said, he goes, it's so amazing to think about all of Gary's thoughts and how he shared in those. And Anthony Pelicano shared in them as well. And it was a great line at the break because I'm like, it's so sorted to have somebody actually listening to your thoughts. It, but It's crazy because nowadays with phones and like all like, you know, you talk about something and next thing you know on Instagram, you see all the targeted ads. Like we already are being surveyed. Oh, yeah. It's just like, it's I, it's already happening with like these major companies. I don't need other people doing it too. What's your like, point? And not to alienate people with the vaccine controversy and those who won't get vaccinated because they think it's like, you know, that there's chips and they're tracking them. Oh, Bro, they're, they're already tracking you. They have your phone. They don't right. They know everything you and I do, everything that we're into, every bizarre fetish, every peccadillo. Bro, they, they, the government knows everything but Virk and Cody are up to. So you're not hiding anything from these people. They're on to us. Um, anyways, the creepy old judge. You think he's just a weird dude, but the film goes in a different direction. He ends up seeing a little bit more charming than you would think. And the climax of the film ends up tying all three films together. It's called Blue, White, and Red. Thanks to my man, John LeBoy, uh, who gave it to me. Here's what I tell you. Here's what I can sell it for you. If you're into, you know, rave reviews and such, Roger Ebert fairly acclaimed film critic. He put I've heard blue, of him. Yeah, please, you've heard of him. He put Blue, White, and Red, the trilogy, all three movements together, which, by the way, ranks about 288 minutes. So let's call five hours long for these three films. He called these films number five on the best films of the 1990s. Okay? Not just hmm. the best films of the year. He's saying of the decade, he had it number five. I believe he had Pulp Fiction in his top five. He had Goodfellas in his top five. Uh, San Diego Union Tribune had it as the best film of 1994. Number three, wow. San Jose Mercury News. So I know this is a little obscure, a little avant-garde, but if you like your Polish films, Krzysztof Kieślowski, you can't do bad with him. Blue, White, and Red. Juliet Binoche, uh, it is currently available. And as Chris said, it's probably streaming somewhere, but I, uh, I just I'm intrigued. DVDs. I'm not going to lie. You are Going intrigued. into it, I was a little like, yeah. right, this is going to be this is going to be a tune-out. But you've got me intrigued. You've got my eyebrows raised. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to check this movie out, well, maybe. Speaking of eyebrows raised, I did text Claire Atkins, who is back from her African lion safari with her husband, Dan. And I said, just so you know, Cody did watch that Aubrey Plaza movie. She goes, I know. He told me. And I, she goes, that's yeah. all it takes. It just takes one. I go, that is. It just takes one. <laughs> so I need the one person who's going to watch Blue, White, and Red to let me know. All right. Last one is <laughs> The one person. The one person. Just please tweet me. Uh, the last one is Clute. Which, again, I'll be succinct. I was disappointed. It's on TCM, Turner Classic Movies. My main man, Ben Mankwitz, was introducing it. Ben is awesome. And um, it's the 50th anniversary of Jane Fonda. She won an Academy Award for it. So she plays a prostitute. And Donald Sutherland is this detective who gets drawn into this mystery. He's trying to find out what happened to his friend who died. And he believes that this prostitute was involved. Immediately, I said, isn't this kind of like basic instinct? Like Sharon Stone's involved. Mm -hmm. and she's a journalist. And she's kind of, mm. But I, I know she's not a prostitute, but she, whatever. So I was like, I, I kind of draw some parallels of basic instinct. Although it's not nearly as, as racy. Granted, the film did come out in 1971. But one of the funniest exchanges for people of this podcast will appreciate is as Donald Sutherland is talking to her, trying to figure out her whole mojo, he's kind of casting aspersions towards her for being a call girl. And now she's trying to be an actress. She's trying to distance herself from that past. Yeah. But she turns on him and she goes, oh, yeah, what's your fetish? Now, this is 1971. She says, do you like it when a girl walks on your chest, walks on your hairy chest in high heels? Do you like? Do you like? That's nothing. Do you like having women watch you tinkle, or hmm. do you just like wearing women's clothing? So hmm. think about the writer fifty years ago. He had to think. I'm like, hmm. So what's the peccadillos that guys would be into? What fetishes? All right, having a woman walk on your chest, high heels. That's probably up there. Um, watching, having a woman watch you tinkle was the exact words used. Urinating, <laughs> and three, just wearing women's clothing. 
I'm like, I, I don't think those fetishes held up now that we're in 2021. <laughs> it's quite a stretch we're making there. We're like making quite the leap from one to the other. It's like <laughs> walking on the back. All right, I can deal with this. We're having a nice time. And like, whoa, why are you watching me tinkle? What's happening right now? <laughs> there's, there's, there's candle wax involved. Okay, I get that. Not sure about the urination, especially if, especially if I'm like frequently urinating. Like I have a urinary tract infection. That's a problem. Uh, anyways, it's one of these thrillers that I don't think holds up. It came out in 1971. The best part of the movie is Jane Fonda, which if I said to you, Jane Fonda, you're like, hmm, not sure how much I know about her. She was in Mother-in-Law, Monster-in-Law, which I believe was a movie about a mother-in-law, yes. Uh, she's done some workout videos over the years. She's married to Ted Turner. I know that. Yep, Atlanta Braves, cool. But I don't think really know Jane Fonda very much as an actress. So I felt at least learned a little more about her as an actress. She did win an Academy Award for the movie. She was in Barbarella playing a real sex pot. That was back in 1968. But her performance is the best thing I can recommend from Clute. I like Donald Sutherland a lot, mainly because he's Canadian, huge Montreal Expos fan. He used to have a friend during Expos games. Again, this is like the early 80s. He'd have a friend like put his, like literally his phone up to the radio and like just so he could listen to play by play of the Expos. I'm like, what? Like, think of what generation <laughs> we're in right now. He's yeah. on set shooting ordinary people. He's like, yeah, I got to find out what's happening in the Expos. Uh, Expos, uh, Mets, it's, uh, you know, late in the seventh. Okay, cool. So anyways, diehard <laughs> fan. He once ripped himself, by the way. Donald Sutherland was profiled in 60 Minutes and he goes, I can't believe I became an actor considering how ugly I am. And the interviewer was like, oh, come on, don't be so hard on yourself. Yeah. He's like, no, no, when I look in the mirror, I just see these creepy eyes and big ears and an ugly face. And I got to be Jeez. honest, when I was watching Clute, he was kind of onto something. I'm like, it is, like, you know what? He is kind of a ghoulish looking guy. Like, I love him, but I'm like, it is kind of surprising you were able to make it this far as an actor. He's also Very in the short list. When people say to me, best actor to never be nominated for an Oscar, Donald Sutherland's been a great actor for a long time. He's in Ordinary People. He's in uh, Backdraft. Never been nominated for an Oscar. Really good actor. But ultimately, he just came across as kind of creepy and perverted in this movie. Clute, which is currently available on TCN, Turner Classic Movies. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give it two Maple Leafs. I recommend it for Jane Fonda. All right, thanks so much once again to Chris Cody. Awesome job here on the podcast. Go check out Paw Patrol the movie. Uh, go find a way to watch Blue, White, and Red. Watch Clued on TCM. Watch Jungle Cruise. Support cinema. We'll be back next week. Hey, I got a great guest, Nick Davis. He is the director of the film of the 1986 Mets. It's the latest 30 for 30 coming out on ESPN in September. So Nick is going to join us. Uh, reviews of lots of new films. I'll see you at the movies. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.